Good morning and have a seat. You can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. That's where we'll be starting in verse 28. As uh, you're turning there, uh, let me just give you something to to visualize. In in, uh, the summer of 2017, we thought it would be a good idea to pile all five of our kids into the car and drive west. Ultimately, it was a good idea. I'll just give you the ending. It was, it was a fantastic road trip. They did great in the car. But part of our goal was to get all the way to the Olympic Peninsula in uh, western Washington. And we did that. And, and we saw Olympic National Park and Mount Rainier while we were there. It was a little uh, overcast that day, but we still went up <clears throat> as far as you could drive at least and hiked around for a bit. Came back through uh, Glacier. Anyone else like camping and being outside and national parks and the whole, right? Some of you are like camping involves a down comforter and a TV and room service. Maybe that's you. That's okay. But the idea uh, that I want to give you a picture of is, is the contrast, right? We've, we, we're familiar, at least some of us are familiar around here with maybe the north woods of Minnesota. It's beautiful. There's trees. And then you get into the Pacific Northwest and the trees are like... 20 times taller. And the elevation changes are, are so incredibly significantly different than what we experience here in the Midwestern Plains. There were legitimate mountains that we went up. And we would drive up and hike around them. And, and almost at every instance, we would pull off to a little, a little side like lookout area. Or as we were hiking and you'd come to a clearing, you would just stop. And after a while, my kids would say, we've already seen this. And I'm like, no, no, we haven't seen this, right? And why do we, why do we stop and look out over the valley or come through a clearing and just pause in front of a lake that you can't see unless you walk through the woods for miles to find it? Why do you do that? Why do we do that? Because we're seeing things and it stirs something in us, doesn't it? This sense of amazement and awe. Maybe you've had an experience like that. Maybe it's been up on a literal mountain. Or standing at the edge of the guardrail, looking down into the Grand Canyon. Right? Or the crater of a volcano. And what do you sense in that moment but a sense of awe? A Wow. And maybe it's not just a marvel out in creation. Anyone who's a parent in the room has had a similar internal reaction when you hold your baby for the first time. You, you, you feel that sense of, of awe. Maybe some of you can equate that to the first time you felt true freedom from your sin. When you, when you understood the gospel, when the grace of God opened your eyes and you went, what? Right? That feeling of awe is, is arresting. It, it sets us back on our heels a little. It steals our breath. It leaves us speechless. And I think part of the reason it does that, the why does it do that? Whether it's a mountaintop or a newborn baby, I think in part it's arresting because whether we want to admit it or not, we are witnessing something 
miraculous. The vastness and the beauty of creation compared to how small and insignificant we are in reality, in comparison. The miracle of life and the miracle of new life that with all our medical knowledge and all our theological knowledge, we realize that a miracle is happening when a baby is born and when a person is born again. In these instances, we are getting a sliver, a a, a glimpse, a momentary snapshot of God's glory. That's what I think is, is happening there. We're getting a picture of it and it floors us. It freezes us in our tracks. And this is just a a shadow of how glorious God really is. In our text today, we're looking at a pretty unique portion of Luke's gospel. In the middle of all these healings and miracles, right after this significant call to Jesus' disciples, where he says to them that they should be ready and, and willing to lay down their lives to follow him, we come to what's called the transfiguration. This is both a literal and a figurative mountaintop experience where all the glimpses and effects of the glory of the kingdom kind of break through the natural world a little bit and leave the disciples in awe. Like the disciples here, how we can relate is our view is also limited. We recognize this. We tend to see only the now and the normal and the natural We see through a veil, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. The veil of our own humanity. We we, we see through a world that is still feeling the effects of sin. Like the disciples in Luke 9, our view is limited. But God unfolds and gives glimpses of His glory. Specifically, God the Father reveals His divine glory in God the Son, Jesus Christ. And the glory of God in Jesus does something both for us and to us. It confirms our faith, that our faith in Jesus is real. And it also does something to us. It conforms us, fashions us, reshapes us to the image of Jesus. Uh, here's that, the big idea. Our view is limited. Our vision is veiled. It's covered somewhat. It's obscured. But God reveals his glory in Jesus that confirms our faith and conforms us to Christ. Let's read the the text together. Luke 9, starting in verse 28. This is God's word for us this morning. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, James, excuse me, Peter and John and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men who were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. 
And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one what they had seen. This is God's word for us today. Now, there there are so many things that, that remind me of just how limited I am. It doesn't matter our, our, our accomplishments. And don't get me wrong. Humans have accomplished some amazing feats. We have prolonged our own lives by curing disease. But in the span of a thousand years or 10,000 years or a million years, what is the difference between 40 and 80? Right? We've sent men to the moon. Most people believe. Right? We've sent vehicles to Mars. Did anyone watch the landing of the new rover on Mars? Fascinating to me. Mind-blowing. I also do think we sent vehicles to Mars. Which is, and that's super cool, right? They're sending back pictures from another planet that we can, like, look at on our telephones. But compared to the vastness of even just our solar system, let alone our galaxy, let alone the universe, what is 146 million light years? Excuse me, 146 million miles compared to the 156,000 light years from one end of our galaxy to the other. I mean, we're talking like strand of hair, yardstick. Right? I don't actually know if that's a good ratio. I'm just giving you a picture. I did not do the math. Scientifically, we know more about our own solar system than we do about the, the depths of our own oceans. Okay? Why do I bring this up? Not to just minimize humanity and like, oh, look how crappy we are. No, no. We've, we've, we've done some amazing things and discovered and, and, and explored and learned and created. But for all of our creativity, for all of our, our self-promotion and our self-congratulations, we as humans are limited Not that we can't accomplish great things. We can and we do. But our limitations as created beings are obvious. And this comes up here in this passage. As the glory of God is revealed in Jesus. See, Peter, James, and John are brought with Jesus to go up uh, assumedly to pray. Which is what Jesus often did. And the disciples were tired and sleepy. But the glory radiating out of Jesus amazes them. Now what's interesting is this is not the first time that God's people have gotten a glimpse of the glory of God. As we read this morning, our passages from Exodus 33 and 34 spoke of Moses who radiated, his skin glowed with the glory of God after meeting with God on the mountain and receiving God's law for Israel. Exodus tells us that after Moses spent time with God, the skin of his face glowed. Exodus uh, uses the word shone. To the point where the people couldn't look at him without being uncomfortable. So Moses wore a veil over his face. See, as created beings, there's a limitation not just to our overall ability as created beings 
But there's a limitation we have even to take in the radiance, the brightness of God's glory. We are unable to see him in all his splendor and all his glory. It is too much for us. It would immediately blind us and in the next moment kill us. See, in Moses' case, in the book of Exodus, he has been in God's presence. The glory of God has passed by Moses. As we read in the passage, uh, God literally kind of tucked him in a rock. And then as he passed by, the residual of God's glory was visible to Moses, not directly his face, because that would kill him. Just the residual glory, the, the, the leftover made Moses' face glow. He's bearing a, a reflection of God's glory, a residue, if you will, leftover glory after being in God's presence. This in Luke, however, is a little different. Luke tells us that the appearance of Jesus' face is altered and that his clothing became a dazzling white. I think of it as the difference between the light reflected off the snow on a cold winter morning, which, hallelujah, we are moving past. Amen? But we were reminded of this week, right? The snow was melted and we were like, woo! And then it snowed again and we all went, what? Right? I got in my car that morning and the ground was bright. Why? Because the light is reflecting off of this bright white snow back up into my eyeballs. It hurt. That's kind of what this is like. It's the difference between the light reflecting off the snow into my eyes and me going, uh, and staring directly at the sun. It's a very different pain for my eyes. Right? When Moses, Moses' glory here was a reflected glory. But the glory streaming from Jesus was a revealed glory. Here's what I mean by that. I mean that the glory of God for a moment was no longer contained by the human nature and human flesh in which the eternal Son of God had wrapped himself. The fullness of the glory of God was leaking through, if you will, the humanity of Jesus. His full humanity was giving way for a moment to his full divinity. And this glory being revealed was showing the disciples not only something amazing and mind-blowing, but was proving to them exactly who he was. Moses was marked by residual glory, proving that he had been with God. Exodus tells us that. It, it proved to the people that Moses had been with God. But here, Jesus is not reflecting glory. He is emanating glory from within himself, proving that he indeed was God. One commentator on this passage says it this way, the revelation of the glory of God reflecting off the face of Moses was an accompanying sign of the divine source of the message that God gave him on the mountain. It was proof that God had spoken to Moses. The emanating glory from the face of the Lord Jesus Christ was not a reflected glory. Jesus is the very revelation of the glory of God in the flesh. The glory reflecting off the face of Moses served as a marker of God's authority, the authority of God. But the glory shining from the face of Jesus served as a verifying sign of his own divine glory. The gospel accounts of Matthew and Mark also talk about this transfiguration in very similar terms. What's interesting is John's gospel doesn't bring it up at all. Except for John's gospel seems to be a commentary 
on Jesus' divinity entirely. John starts his gospel like this, John 1.14. And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as if the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the rest of John's gospel is an explanation or an expounding on the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. This same John, who was given the, the vision for the book of Revelation, who said this, upon hearing a voice speaking to him, a voice speaking, one like this, a son of man, clothed with a long robe, verse 16 of Revelation chapter 1, John says, and his face was like the, shining, the sun shining in full strength. That's the picture of the, the fullness of the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus. There are clear limitations both in our ability to, to, to produce, but also to take in. We are limited in what we actually do see is still partial and veiled and dim. Right? We can't stare at the sun without going blind. And our Heavenly Father knows this. In Moses, God gave a glimpse of his glory, reflected on the face of Moses to prove that he had sent Moses. In a better and more full way, God is giving a glimpse of his glory revealed in the face of Jesus, proving that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is sent by the Father, that he has come to seek and save the lost, to rescue and redeem those who are far off, that he is the eternal Son of God, the Lord's Christ, and that his words and his work are the words and work of God himself. The glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus, proving the identity and the purpose of the Son of God, sent by the Father to accomplish his will and fulfill his promises. This is important for the disciples because they were just told, you're going to have to lay down your life for this guy. And the revelation of the glory of God in the face of Jesus is accomplishing something in the life of those disciples and in the lives of all those who would trust in Jesus through their message, and that's us. It does two things. It confirms faith and conforms us to Christ. Look at verse 30 and 31, verses 30 and 31. It says, and behold, two men were talking with him, that is talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Moses was the prophet called by God to lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt. We've talked about him already. Elijah was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel after the nation split. And he was also a, a type of forerunner, one who would come before God's Messiah at the great and terrible day of the Lord. It was assumed and understood by faithful Jewish believers, that Elijah was going to be a forerunner to the day of judgment. That's why when John the Baptist is preaching and proclaiming that the kingdom of God is near, people are like, is this guy Elijah? And when he dies and they hear Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near and he's performing miraculous works, they're like, is, is this guy Elijah? They're looking for someone. But both Moses and Elijah show up here on the side of a mountain with 
Jesus in glory. Look at verse 31. What were Moses and Elijah talking about? Luke tells us they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. His departure, the English phrase there, departure, in the Greek, it's the Greek equivalent to what in the Old Testament is referred to as an exodus, or the exodus, if you will. In the book of Exodus, it's referring to the exodus, where God's people were rescued out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, led by Moses. And this departure, this exodus, is what Elijah and Moses are talking to Jesus about. Not that exodus from Egypt, but this new exodus, what Jesus was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. And go with me for a second. What did Jesus accomplish in Jerusalem? What happened when he went there? He was crucified. They were speaking to him about what he was going to Jerusalem to accomplish. Moses and Elijah show up to talk to Jesus about his mission to the cross. And Hebrews tells us that the faithful saints of old had faith in God and they were hoping in the future fulfillment of all of God's promises. All of the law and prophets, they all are pointing to Jesus. And here's where we see that connection point. Where Moses and Elijah are saying, you're the one. And you're the one who's going to fulfill what God promised to us thousands of years ago in our covenant. Right? Jesus is the one they were waiting for. And again, this is important for the disciples to see. See, Elijah was a prophet calling God's people back to God. And Jesus is the greater Elijah, not only calling people back to God, but ushering in the kingdom that will destroy all the works of of evil and establish justice and righteousness forever. No longer a flawed kingdom, one that is perfect and good. Moses was the redeemer of the people of Israel. He led them out of slavery and back to the land that God had promised them. And Jesus is the greater Moses, leading his people in a greater exodus Not only freedom from bondage to earthly kings, but freedom from bondage to sin and Satan, transferring us from the kingdom and domain of darkness to the eternal kingdom of the Son, where we will dwell and live with Him in glory forever. See, for Moses and Elijah, their trust in God's future promise is confirmed in Jesus. And the disciples didn't know it yet, but they're going to be confronted with a similar challenge. When they face death for naming the name of Jesus, when they face persecution for preaching the gospel, will they have confidence that God is still good? That his purposes are still sure? That his promise will come to pass? That their own hardship and possibly their own death is worth it? See, Jesus is looking now squarely at the cross. So to follow Jesus was to follow this man to his death with possibly your own. Jesus is the one. Moses and Elijah clearly knew this as they were talking about Jesus and his mission to the cross, his death in Jerusalem. But Peter, James, and John can hardly believe what they are seeing. Like, They are dumbstruck, awestruck, speechless almost. 
Luke tells us they weren't fully awake. They were heavy with sleep. You can picture them here, can't you? Rubbing their eyes, kind of wondering like, what's happening right now? And as Moses and Elijah seem to be moving away from Jesus, Peter has a suggestion. Oh, Peter. Always with the suggestions. Usually not good ones. Unless we pick on Peter, I just remind myself, that would probably be me. Right? Hey, I got an idea. So Peter suggests and says out loud, Master, it is good that we are here. Captain Obvious. Right? It is good that we saw this. And his plan to hold on to that goodness that he sees, hold on to the glory a little bit, is to, is to build a tent, a tabernacle, where Jesus and Moses and Elijah can all reside in their glory and splendor. And Luke literally tells us he didn't even really know what he was saying. I love the commentary there. It shows, again, if we're talking about limitations, it shows the humanity of Peter a little bit. I don't even know what I'm saying. I just said stuff. Let's uh, build a tent, right? That's kind of how it's portrayed. Peter was missing the point. This is an object lesson in missing the point. And again, lest we pick on Peter, we do this too, right? We stand on a high point or a scenic outlook, and what do we do? We pull out our phones, and we go... And don't get me wrong, there's some... There's some cool pictures that we take and we store memories and we have some hanging up at our house of places we've been. And even some of this trip from 2017, we captured uh, some really great memories and photos, things we can hang up. But our hope in that is what? To capture a, a sliver, right? How often does it really work that when we whip out our phones or even if we have really nice cameras because we think we're photographers and we take pictures of places and things... As if we're trying to hold, sorry, that was a cheap shot, uh, trying to hold on to, trying to hold on to this. And then we look at them later and we're like, man, you know, that really didn't capture the color of the sky, did it? There's a little bit out of focus. That, That thing, that animal, that mountain goat we saw off in the distance is just kind of a white blob on this picture, isn't it? And what are we doing when we do do that most of the time? We're attempting to bottle up a little bit of that majesty and take it home with us. And even though that picture might evoke fond memories or or help us remember what it felt to stand in that place and see that thing, it's not the same, right? It's clearly not the same. And Peter here is kind of missing the purpose of this transfiguration moment. There's a proving of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. There's a confirming that, yes, Jesus is the one in whom our faith should be placed. But the other part to this is that it's doing something. It's conforming them to Christ. Look at verse 34 and 35. As Peter was saying these things, again, not knowing what he's saying, as Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. If the the glory shining bright didn't do it, maybe a voice from heaven would get the job done. See, this, this cloud that came over them is a representation of the presence of God, the glory of God. 
in Exodus, when Moses went up the mountain to receive from God, a cloud covered the mountain where Moses met with the Lord. This is the the tangible expression of God's glory. Shekinah. His presence. And Luke says they were afraid. And rightly so. This has connotations of both terror and awe. It's both. The voice that spoke sounds like the voice that spoke from heaven at Jesus' baptism. They've heard this voice before. This is my son, my chosen one. And then the only command in the entire passage, listen to him. All the rest is description, except for that. Listen to him. In light of the glory, breaking through what they see in the natural world, in light of the affirmation of two faithful witnesses, Moses and Elijah, speaking to Jesus about his mission of redemption, in light of the voice of God himself, proclaiming <clears throat> excuse me, the sure identity of the chosen one, listen to him. Pay attention. Hear what he has to say. And where the disciples seem a little slow on the uptake, we should pay attention. The limitations of the disciples, the weaknesses that we know we have by way of our own existence is not the sum of us. The Apostle Paul uses the phrase, conformed to the image of of Christ. Romans 8:26 Paul says the spirit helps us in our weakness verse 28 that God is working all things together for our good verse 29 that he has predestined us uh, his own to be conformed to the image of his son that he has predestined us called us justified us and glorified us in Christ Jesus Paul says God the Father revealing God the Son is conforming us fashioning us to the image of the Son through the power of God the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be conformed to the image of Christ? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49, that just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus, the better Adam. We talk about this in terms of being born again, right? We are made new creations in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. We talk about it every time we celebrate baptism here. Death to the old life, new life, raised to new life in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, in our weakness, in our affliction, in our persecution, we do not lose heart, Paul says. Why? Because our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. There's a reality to the limitations and death of our humanity. And yet God, in His glory and in His mercy, is working a renewal and a redemption and a growth in us from now through eternity. We are being conformed to the image of Christ. And the glory of Jesus that is peeking through His humanity here gives us just a glimpse of the overwhelming glory that's yet to come. Theologian J.C. Ryle says this on this passage. I think I have the, the quote up there. 
let us take comfort in the thought that there are good things laid up in store for all true Christians, which shall make ample amends for the afflictions of this present time. Now is the season for carrying the cross and sharing in our Savior's humiliation. Jesus mentioned this in the passage just before here. The crown, the kingdom, the glory are all yet to come. He goes on, but the hour is coming and will soon be here when Christ shall take to himself his great power and reign and put down every enemy under his feet. And then the glory, which was first seen for a few minutes by three witnesses, Peter, James, and John, on the Mount of Transfiguration, shall be seen by the whole world and never hidden to all eternity. So when Jesus, in this passage before, where he kind of lays down the hammer, that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, willing to lose your very life for the sake of Christ Jesus, there is a yes. When he asks that question, there's a yes. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Second Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says this, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. They could not see even the residual of the glory, without being made so uncomfortable that Moses, for their, you could argue for their benefit, or because they were weak, he covered his face. They couldn't handle it. Verse 15. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, speaking of followers of Jesus, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are being conformed to the image of Christ and are being transformed by God's glory through the Holy Spirit. The glory of God in the face of Jesus makes the call to follow him and the invitation to give my life so that others might know him worth it. Let me say that again. The glory of God in the face of Jesus makes the call to follow him. The invitation for you and I to lay down our lives and our comforts so that other people might know this hope. It's worth it. But I'm just making an assertion that it's worth it. Each of us has to ask the question, just like the disciples. This glimpse of God's glory sits right in between two places where Jesus is predicting his own death. He says it again here in just a few verses, verse 43 of chapter 9. To follow Jesus means following him to death. Is following Christ worth the risk? That's the question the disciples are faced with. That's the question we're faced with. Is taking up our cross worth it? See, the disciples need a a picture beyond just the now. Beyond just the world that they're living in. They need to see the glimmer of the light in the life to come. It isn't enough just to set up a tent and hang out there on the mountaintop. 
There's no storing up the glory of God and keeping up bottled in the walls of a tent or a church building. The transfiguration here was intentionally temporary. It was intentionally a glimpse, (coughs) excuse me, pointing to something greater. It was purposely short so that they wouldn't linger there, but they would hope for what's to come, what it's pointing to. And they would soon come to find out that what was first unclear would become clear. As Jesus was led away, as he was crucified, as he rose again, as the Spirit comes to them at Pentecost, they would see more and more and more of the reality of the kingdom of God coming in glory to invade their world. And this is our wrestle as well. I have to admit, this week has been encouraging and exciting as I've kind of been digging into this whole topic of the glory of God revealed in Jesus. It stirs something in me and I hope in us that that we need an answer for. How do we assess our, our faith, our life in Christ in light of the weaknesses we see in ourselves and the brokenness of the world around us? I think that this picture of the transfiguration should challenge us. We must consider our calling. We must consider our commission as disciples of Jesus, citizens of his heavenly kingdom, that we are co-heirs with Christ. And we need to consider all of that not in light of our affliction, not in light of our hardship, which is light and momentary, not in light of persecution for our faith or in the face of earthly loss. If we look at our calling as disciples in light of those things, we will have a tough time saying, that's worth it. Instead, we must consider what it means to be a disciple, the cost of being a disciple of Jesus in light of the eternal glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. The perspective on this absolutely matters. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. We consider every moment of our lives in view of the day when the Son of Man will come with all His Father's glory and all His holy angels with Him, that great day of vengeance for the wicked and glorious victory for the Lord and His saints. That's what we're looking at. And the glorious eternity with Him that follows. Romans 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther said this, I have two days on my calendar, this day and that day. See, our view, our perspective is absolutely limited. We know this. We are so often slaves to the now. But God has revealed his glory in Jesus. And it should and and does confirm that our faith in Jesus is not in vain. 
and gives us hope that the Spirit is at work in us, conforming us to the image of Christ. That we are being transformed and that He will bring us all the way to the end. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that our view is often so limited. And yet you're kind to us to give us a picture, a glimpse of the glory of God in Jesus. And I pray you would do that afresh. That as we focus for a moment on your departure, that you not only left the confines of glory to wrap yourself in human flesh, but that you carried all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our sorrow to the cross, that you might put it to death and then raise again to life that we might have life in you. Would you give us eyes to see what we so often can't? The great and glorious picture of Jesus. Stir our affections for you. And drown out by the brightness of your glory, Lord Jesus. All the tiny little lights and shiny things that draw our attention. That our faith in you would be confirmed and maybe restored. Or maybe for the first time in this room actually birthed for the first time. That we would see you as glorious. That we would see you as the Savior that we need. And we would surrender. And that we would, by your grace, be able to look and see all of our lives. The joys and the sorrows through the lens of eternity. Would you stir fresh faith and hope in your people? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.